programming is made possible in part by the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, providing comprehensive reproductive and sexual health services for all women of all ages at all stages since 1984. Insurance, main care, Deergo, and self-pay accepted. MabelWadsworth.org. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Healthy Options with your host Rhonda Feynman is up next. Good morning. Welcome to Healthy Options and WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. I'm very pleased today that our guest is Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair, the author of The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationship, Relationships in the Digital Age. Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair has an extensive and impressive resume as an internationally recognized clinical psychologist, school consultant, teacher, and author. She has a private practice in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, where she works with children, adults, couples, and families, and is also a clinical instructor in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and associate psychologist at McLean Hospital. And over the past 30 years, she's worked in more than 350 schools throughout the United States and abroad, leading workshops for administrators, teachers, and parents on a wide range of topics related to strengthening children's social and emotional intelligence and resilience. These work workshops include helping schools implement programs designed to increase children's confidence and competence as emerging leaders. And the programs challenge unhealthy cultural values which undermine children's healthy development. Dr. Steiner Dare's award-winning research led to the creation of a highly acclaimed middle school program aimed at giving girls tools to resist the culture of body preoccupation and disordered eating. It's called Full of Ourselves, a wellness program to advance girls' power, health, and leadership. And it was the first successful middle school program-based primary prevention program of its kind. She lectures, leads workshops, how to nourish healthy relationships in the age of technology, which leads us to the subject of today's discussion on healthy options. Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair's comprehensive research experience and insights have resulted in a compelling book, The Big Disconnect. Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. The big, in The Big Disconnect, Dr. Steiner Adair examines the ways in which technology and media are challenging our children at every level of development and the repercussions that result for parents who both perpetuate the disconnect and are themselves affected by it. She offers advice on how to develop what she calls a sustainable family that prioritizes face-to-face -face connection between parents and children and sets limits and guidelines on how to integrate technology into the family system. We're honored to have her here with us today by phone and to talk with us, talk with us about the big disconnect. Welcome to Healthy Options, Dr. Katherine Steiner-Adair. Hi, Katherine. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me to join you. I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. So there's so much in this book that is um, uh, just so rich and, and uh, poignant and, and absolutely um, relevant to what's happening to kids today. But I thought we might start uh, with this idea of what, you, what your vision is of that sustainable family. Um, um, you know, where, 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 where are we going or what's our, our uh, idea of what is necessary for good childhood development for, and, and creating that? Well, you know, I think the 
whole idea of sustainability is, is a good one because families are such a wonderful ecosystem. And as a therapist, I certainly am continuously amazed by a family's ability to to sort of hit reboot, if you will, or restart sure. and, and rethink how they're functioning as a family and how they're spending time and hanging out as a family and how they're communicating as a family. And technology is here to stay, but it doesn't have to control us. And I think... In fact, it requires us to be a lot more mindful about how we do stay connected as a family. And there are a couple of things I think that will help families guiding principles. One is to be very clear with your children at each stage that you roll out more technology about what's okay and what we expect and what's not okay. I'm a big fan of family kind of responsible use agreements or contracts and got young kids at home post them by the computer in the family room so when other kids come over and say oh let's go to this site on you know the web the child can say no look these are the rules here at my house i can't do that my parents are so strict you want to be those strict parents (laughs) um so you have to have a clear understanding that you get that is revisited you know this is back to school it's a great time children often think about their phones or their ipads as theirs sort of like an entitlement, and that's a real mistake. It's not there. This is not your phone, even though we call it, quote, your phone. And, you know, here's what we expect you to do on the phone and not do on the phone, and what do you think of what you should do and not do, and let's have a real conversation. And don't forget that if you use the phone for things that we know aren't okay, if you're mean to somebody on the phone, if you forward a picture that's humiliating or embarrassing to somebody, if you talk to somebody in an unsafe way, if you go onto sites that are not okay, if you participate in texting that's a gang up against kids at school or or anybody, we're taking the phone away from you. There will be consequences. And then, of course, the hard thing in parenting always is to follow through. So that, I think, is one really important thing. And just keep talking about tech. What do you do on screens today? Like, what do you do in the playground today? It has to be part of everyday conversation. So so that's that's the the ideal, and that's our goal. And, and what I'm also really interested in is the idea of uh, the neuroscience and learning and brain development. And, and with that in place as a, as parents and as a family system i'd like to go back a little bit and and talk about what is uh what is what do kids need at different stages and your book talks a lot about uh, about that a lot and i am I'm, I'm very interested in the research and what you've talked about um in the book in in terms of what toddlers need and what middle school kids need so maybe we could go we could just start by uh, diving into what do we need as humans to really thrive into to connect and how does our, the technology of, of our day and age impact that? Well, another sustainable sort of through line or suggestion sure. speaks directly to that, and that is that children need to play. They really need to play. Um, and they need to play in the old-fashioned, unplugged way. And that's something parents actually have to make sure kids do because very quickly a screen can replace playing outdoors because it is so addictive and so compelling and such a stimulant. What we know, it's, it's really clear that screens of all kinds, including TVs, are not good for infants up until the age of two. Hmm. They're just not good. 
And the American Pediatric Association has been saying this for years, no screens, 0 to 2. That's the recommendation, and yet we ignore it because we are so caught up in our own screens. They seem like such a quick remedy. They seem like such a great thing. So many parents, I interviewed young parents, said, oh, my God, I can't imagine what it would be like to have to go on a flight or go through the checkout line and deal with a cranky you know, 18-month-old without being able to hand them my smartphone. Hmm. And it's just amazing how quickly we think we need these to raise our children and to get us through the moments of parenting that are challenging. But when you think about what an infant needs, they, one of the first things we do for an infant is we learn how to calm our baby down and how to soothe them. You know, we hold them, we swaddle them, we sing to them. We, it is human touch, it is human voice that begins to teach children one of the most important life skills, which is the ability to calm yourself down and not be reactive and not turn to stimulants when you are frustrated or anxious or bored. And when you hand an infant a screen of any kind, when they're frustrated, upset, or bored, and particularly a smartphone or an iPad or a mini iPad or a computer, you are in fact replacing teaching them to calm themselves down with handing them a stimulant. So that shapes their brain. That creates a different neurological, neurobiological highway system, pathways we talk about. You know, we're so protective of dropping babies because we know their heads are so soft. Those brains are not developed. And there's a wonderful book called Wrapped. And it basically talks about you are and your mind is what you consume. So this is a huge experiment. We are rewiring the brains of children today without really knowing the impact. What we're beginning to see is that children who have too much screen time up until the age of five have a decreased capacity to pay attention. You know, we've all seen those sort of goofy YouTube videos, or maybe all of us haven't, but I sure have, of two-year-olds or four-year-olds hitting a book in frustration yes. because the book doesn't... It doesn't respond swipe. to them. It doesn't ping. It doesn't have bells. It doesn't give them the next answer. So the capacity to develop language, to develop kinesthetically, physically, to develop your capacity to pay attention to, to develop your capacity to play, to be creative, to work through mommy, I'm bored, to real inner creativity. Technology deprives children of critical time to do the work of childhood, to develop what we call the sensorium. It's the part of the brain that needs to develop between 0 and 5. It's all the pre-learning platforms. And technology has very, very little to offer children at this stage of development, unless they're growing up with parents who don't speak English as their primary language, or certain kids we know, like children who have spectrum disorders, technology actually can be helpful educationally for some children. But children who don't come in with those challenges really are missing out on learning the most important ways, which is full body, in real life, in your own imagination. Okay. Um, I, I, that, that's amazing. Uh, Catherine, can I ask you, 
Um, could you, are you um, on a handset? Can I am on a handset. Okay, can you talk a little bit louder sure. into that handset? That would be, that would be great. Um, I mean, you're saying, well, here we are, technology, right? Getting in our way. Right. But <laughs> what you're saying is so incredibly important. And um, I want everyone to be able to hear you. Um, this idea of, neuro, of, of that kind of neurological connection is just is radical when i first when i read that um it, it almost sent chills <laughs> <laughs> well it's chilling to me too you know when you think about you, you know back to the developmental picture you think about what it was like to play dress up when you're five years old right you are in a box usually you know putting on shoes of different sizes toddling around trying to get your balance you're making up play you're working with a friend or your own imagination, creating narrative. You are changing the script as the minute you pick up something else. Maybe you're arguing over who gets which boa or which sword or whatever it is. And in that kind of play, you are doing so many important things neurologically, neurobiologically. And then you watch a kid play magic red carpet, dress up. Oh, yeah. You know, even the language, I'm playing dress-up. No, you're not. You're playing a computer game. You're playing game a computer game. Where all you do is swipe red, you know, swipe the, the screen and hit red tiara, blue tiara, yellow tiara, purple tiara. It's a world of difference. So you're not getting the, the physical, you're not getting the hand-eye coordination, you're not getting the neurological stimulation, you're not making up your own ideas either. The and whole idea of imagination. Right, and, and the other thing that's so important for children you are not developing the social and emotional intelligences to be able to collaborate, to be part of a team, to work together, to co-create. And parents are so vulnerable to the marketing. Get this app for your brilliant baby. You know, this will teach your child better language. Well, we know without a doubt the children pick up language neurologically the best in real life. By six months old, a baby can distinguish between its parents uh, reading to them in real life and the voice on the screen, be it a TV screen, a computer, an audio tape, and the parts of the brain that light up for learning language light up the most when they are being read to in real life. So really, it's all part of that sustainable family, the absolute connection between parents and siblings and being spoken to and having that real life connection one of the most important things families will do now is they will be the primary language lab if you will for articulating our emotions and dealing with all the muck of getting along with other people because as texting replaces tone of voice on a telephone can you hear my voice better now Rhonda? well it's a little low, I have to say. But it is. All right. I will, I, I will try and ah, talk even louder. Okay. So if texting replaces tone of voice, is that better? Yeah. Families are going to be one of the few places where people actually have to learn how to speak and get to speak and are required to speak spontaneously about what they're feeling and have to interact in the moment, not with a... 15 or five hour text pause in a conversation to think about the really perfect thing they want to text back or snarky thing they want to text back. <laughs> you know, one of the things we work on with children all the way through middle school and high school is how to express yourself. 
how to think before you speak, how to argue, how to get to resolution, how to share. And nobody makes us crazier than the people we live with and the people we love the most. But texting now is the primary form of communication for teenagers removes ton of voice. Well, yes, you, you have no cue. Yes, and you, you know whether they're they're audit. You don't get the auditory cues, and if if you have vision, you don't get the visual cues. You don't get the body language. Exactly. How right. do we read each other? And the outcome, one of the outcomes in the book that was so moving to me, there were many things that really, really touched me, but one of them was teenagers who would say over and over, and young adults, college age kids. You know, it's so ironic. We're the most connected generation in history, but we're really bad at intimacy. Yes. Wow. Bad at intimacy because it's easier to remove yourself from the actual communication, isn't it? It's that. It's that when you text and you do not talk, you don't know how to say, I'm hurting, I'm sad. And the whole phenomenon of texting has made it so teenagers now think it's too intent to call somebody or it's intrusive to call somebody. Right. Or when you call someone, you have to deal with those awkward pauses or silence because you're having a conversation in real time and you can't figure out what you want to say. So these are very critical human skills for developing the kind of intimate relationships that actually nourish us psychologically there's um you know this is true the only time i text is to reach uh people of a certain age who will never answer my phone my phone calls right and and um there was also a study somebody was doing some work about um uh getting kids to actually do some job where it required phone conversations and part of it was to train kids how to actually speak on the phone (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what do you say? So, yeah, so that that's that's really does speak to what you're you're saying. So, Catherine, I know you are speaking directly into the phone, but do it even more. Okay. Yes. Yeah, because uh, it's still a little bit too low here. Yeah. So we'll we'll do the best we can. Okay. Yes. So, anyway, um, the other there was a, an aspect of technology and what the material kids are seeing. So we talked a little bit about prefab ideas. You know, we're not playing dress up and not using our own imagination. It's somebody has created this program for us. And a lot of that contact possibly is violent. And I, I was really interested um, in what was happening to the brain with those violent images that we people have become inured to. What is happening to us as we absorb massive visual images of violence. You know, it used to be if, if there was a tragedy, you heard about it on the 6 o'clock news with Walter Cronkite or whatever, I'm dating <laughs> right. myself here. Now, every single time there's any kind of violence, it is streaming 24-7 in taxi cabs, in right. sco- sometimes even in schools, you know, in all sorts of public places. So that's one thing. But the other thing exposure to violence of a different kind, a more ordinary kind, is that in computer games and in a lot of entertainment, there is not massive street shooting type of violence, but there is a through line that says, especially for boys, if you are sad, get mad, 
it's fine to impulsively hit people. There's a whole meme now on YouTube. A meme is like a theme, a, a sort of a, a kind of genre of girls fist fighting, girl fighting. Um, in right. popular TV, we've normalized, you know, the idea that all girls are mean and bitchy gossip girls. The TV show is the latest one to, to sort of create that as a real reality. You know, we have language in our everyday, ordinary descriptions. Oh, she's such a mean girl. Yes. As if, oh, now all girls are mean girls. You know, I was at a conference talking to 800 people. A teacher raised her hand and said, I run a preschool. I have a three-year-old mean girl. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, let's push pause. Yes. What's going on for that three-year-old? But let's please not call her a mean girl. So here's what we see. We see that after nine minutes of watching SpongeBob cartoons, little boys and little girls for 15 minutes play more aggressively, do not listen as well. Teachers would say kids who watch video cartoons show up at school more wired, having a more difficult time settling down, and that their play is not as creative. Huh. They're waiting for something to be given or to react to instead of generating it themselves. Yes, and, and the themes in their play is so informed by what they're doing. So girls on a swing or boys on a swing will say not, say rather, look how high I am, but they'll say, oh, look, I got to the next level. Ah. So or they'll play Mario Brothers, or they'll play Let's All Be Angry Birds. Got it. So it's like the whole notion of creativity gets hijacked because these images are more intense and compelling and faster and with pings and whistles and colors. And we see that the more children play those entertainment games and, and video games of that genre, the more they are desensitized to ordinary violence, Right. the meaner they're likely to be, the more impulsive they can be. And that is something we really need to pay attention to. So, and isn't there something about the reward aspect? There's, you know, it's. I always think about remembering my early college classes in behavioral psychology and such, <laughs> you know, yep. I, which I, I frankly were, were not my favorite, but they were very informative. The, the, this idea that, you know, we're getting the pings and the things and all of a sudden, well, that's, I'm getting some, this other part of my brain is really being stimulated here to say, oh, look, I, I just got more points. Oh, look. Absolutely right. And as grown-ups, you know, we're, we're just like our children. Yes. We're, we're, we are the same species. We're the little Pavlovian parents. Right. And one thing that children describe so poignantly to me is the difference between when they interrupt their mom or dad or caretaker at the kitchen table or at the counter when someone's scrambling eggs, how different the response is when they go to their parent or caretaker and say, please get off your computer, I'm going to be late for school. Yes. And the reason it's different, the reason we are far more cranky and dismissive of our children or our partners when we're interrupted when we're online is because a lot of what we do online speaks to the part of our brain that's like a to-do list. One more email, one more this, one more that, one more this. And when we are, that part of our brain is engaged, 
our capacity for empathy, which is a slightly different pathway in our brain, yes. goes low. When you're playing violent games, when you're watching porn, when you are gambling, when you are shopping in an um, auction-type situation, empathy pretty much turns off altogether. So our brains are interacting with bells and whistles and a kind of screen that we know affects us neurologically. We're just trying to understand some of the actual impact of a computer screen versus a TV screen. One of them that's very important, especially for parents to understand, is that if you are sitting in front of a TV screen or on a smartphone, your body will not produce melatonin naturally when you are tired. Mm. which means that if you want your children to go to sleep, which is hard enough as it is, do not let them take screens into their bedroom at night. From a sleep perspective, kids cannot look at a computer and fall asleep in the same way that they will read a book and fall asleep. Because it's a different part of the brain. Exactly right. Right. One is soothing, one is a stimulant. Mm-hmm. This whole overstimulation. I've, uh, as I, I was talking to some people about the book, I, I was reading it. They, they weren't at that moment. And I would hear things such as, um, well, you know, just playing with the radio in my car is distracting. So what's the difference between having a conversation while I'm driving? And I'm saying, well, it's the different part of the brain that gets stimulated in yes. all of these in, in all of these interactions, and that's that's where it's new. We don't have we're we're just getting the information about this, the research about this, aren't we? I we mean, are, and that's what's so scary. You know, like when cigarettes came along, everybody thought they were so cool and sexy, and I don't know right. what else. But now we know that they cause cancer, right? And and that even secondary health aspects are critical. So we don't know yet. And yet we're all doing this so much without thought. My, the point of the book isn't to stop. I'm no Luddite. I love technology. I use it all the time. But to be more mindful and to really think about what it means to give, say, our children something that we, we know we ourselves can get addicted to or dependent on. Hmm. We're speaking with, by the way, if you just tuned in, Catherine Steiner-Idaire, Dr. Idaire, the author of The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. And um, Dr. Idaire is a clinical psychologist, school consultant, author, and teacher whose professional life is devoted to working with children, parents, and schools. And we're discussing her new book, The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. So... In middle school, you have this wonderful idea about what it, what it used to be like, you know, and I, 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 I related to it. The big thing was, there's going to be a dance, and you're uh, going to be on a, maybe a team, and you're going to uh, right, figure out how to be on the phone all the time, and, right. uh, and all of that, and, and how that's changed. And uh, t- talk, about, talk about that. Well, you know, middle school is not what it, used, what it was. Oh, and, and I don't want to sound like a, you know, well, back in, back in my day, Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one of the hardest things about technology is, is the way in which, first of all, it has eliminated the boundary between home and school. Right. Middle school is torture for most people a lot of the time, but at least you could go home and get a break from it. Mm-hmm. And now it just goes on 
if there's the after-school school and the online school, and unfortunately there are no teachers to sort of keep you in line. <laughs> so one of the things that's happening for kids is that the anonymity of going online, the websites like um, uh, FormSpring and Ask FM that play horribly, painfully, dangerously to the vulnerability of middle schoolers where you go online and post a picture of yourself and then kids can anonymously say what they think. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That, that is so horrible. And you're so vulnerable. You're already self-conscious. Exactly. Anyway. I, we were uh, looking through uh, old photos. Uh, a friend got married, and we were finding these things of us when we were 14 and 13. It was like, oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> and, of course, all you want to know is what do other people think of me? Uh, we <clears throat> were so cute, but that's not what's happening on the... Uh... Not at all. Not at all. I mean, we're losing kids in, in some serious, serious ways. Suicide and depression Whoa. and anxiety. and uh, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's the wild, wild west middle schoolers on the World Wide Web. But the other thing that's happened with technology that is a very big change, you talk about going to the dance. Right. When you went to the dance, it was the dance <laughs> that sort of was where everything happened. Yes. You know, who's with who, right. who's not dancing, that's it. what's the next song, etc. Right. In today's world, with all the emphasis on cameras, when kids go to a dance or a party or what out to d dinner even, it's not the experience itself that carries the most meaning. It is the photo that they post about the experience that carries the most meaning in the teen online social networking world. So that is why you see teenagers taking hundreds of photos, even of plates of food that, you know, they're out somewhere or taking what's called a selfie where you stick your arm out and take a picture of yourself. Sure. And girls I interviewed, middle school girls, high school girls, a few college girls, talked about taking, you know, one or 200 photos and then spending two hours after the event deciding which three Look. they were going to post. Now, this is a lot of work. It's a heck of a lot. It's, it's, it's like producing a television show or a radio show. That's exactly right. It's, it's and actually, and, and um, you know what this also is, is about gender mm -hmm. stereotypes and, and yep. ideas of what it is to be a woman, to be a girl, to be a boy. Well, I mean, how uh, that has to play into this as well. Well, a lot of the, the writing in the book talks about gender stereotypes and how technology, particularly video games and the Snapchat and Instagram and all that, it plays into the worst kind of gender straitjacket because so much of what is out there is so hyper-gender uh, code. Now, that said, one really important thing and opportunity, I mean, there are a lot of good things about technology, but for kids who grow up in communities where they cannot find people who will support them becoming who they are, right. kids who are gay, kids who are trans, kids who are questioning, kids from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds who have landed in a community where they are the only whatever. Yes. If you're the only whatever, that is a painful, hard way to grow up outside the dominant culture where you are a kid.
Mm-hmm. And one wonderful thing about Life Online, it, it, it can save lives. It can help children find healthy communities to connect to. So mm-hmm. it's not all bad, and mm-hmm. there's a lot that's really good. But the mean-spirited stuff, particularly for non-dominant culture-type kids, is really bad, really bad. So parents have to be very careful about talking to their kids about what they're doing and and who they're talking to and what kind of gang-ups are going on and what kind of language is being used because these tools are more powerful than the children are psychologically sophisticated to be able to handle. So age-appropriate, mm-hmm. age-appropriate use of technology. <clears throat> and that's the, uh, the parents needing to um, uh, look at their own attachment <clears throat> to, the, to the technology, yes? Yes, and it's also parents needing to play by the rules. I can't tell you how many parents I interviewed. One, one lawyer comes to mind because she was so articulate about, quote, her moral, what is it, tor- uh, torpor, is that the word? You know, <laughs> a- about getting her 11-year-old daughter a Facebook page when it went, was going to be breaking the law. But oh. she decided to do it because she did not want her 11-year-old daughter to be socially isolated because in their community, everybody quote, everybody had a Facebook page, except not really, because I also interviewed some other kids in that same community, in that same group of girls and moms, and uh, not everybody did. And I think what that spoke to so strongly to me was how hard it is as a parent to trust your own moral authority and to do what you think is the right thing, especially because we did not grow up this way. That's right. And... And uh, it's so important that parents play by the rules and that parents teach children to play by the rules by role modeling it themselves. So you have have the contract. This gets back to the sustainable family. Correct. So we have a contract. This is okay and this is not okay. And by having it by the computer, it really takes the pressure off your child, doesn't it? It takes the pressure off you too. And you too, because you're not not making it up each time. You're not going to have a conversation every single time something comes up, which will be every single time minute it's no different from the charts we used to have you know in my family on the fridge of you know the day of the week and who emptied the dishwasher and who did this and what bedtimes were and just a sort of objective these are the things we agreed to and it just takes all the emotional heat out of it right so you as parents and i know there are a lot of parents tuning in uh, on bated breath, you you talk. <laughs> looking real. What can I do? I love your responses. The uh, crazy, <laughs> clueless, and reactive. Yep. Don't be that. Okay. No. Oh, oh the, the should family moved in. Right there goes the neighborhood. No. All right. Tell us. Uh, tell us how to do this. Um, something happens, and and our responses are are so crucial in terms of the of the teaching because yeah. mistakes are going to happen and you talk about it in terms of of kids seeing things that are not that are not age appropriate right sexuality porn violence all of that yeah. and how you react to that is so important you know i it, it's not just kids going looking for trouble yes good kids are getting into bad trouble completely innocently googling vocabulary words huh you know, stuff. kids are ending up on sites seeing things they don't want to see. Yeah. Or a friend might show them something that the friend thinks is funny, but to them it's, like, you know, terrifying. Um, so in the 600 uh, 
kids I interviewed in middle school and high school, one of the questions I asked them was, what are the things your parents do that make you feel safe turning to them when you're in trouble? Or what are the things your parents do that make you think, no way I'm going to go to my parents first? Yes. I am in big trouble, and that's the last place I am turning. So what happened, which is a researcher, of course, one loves, because this is what you look for, were patterns. Mm-hmm. And those patterns actually clustered around three adjectives that teens and tweens used to describe the parents' behavior that meant they would not call their parents or text their parents right. so or you don't run have... into their parents' you know, bedroom and say, stop. Yeah, you don't have the, uh, that, that direct line to actually people who uh, uh, most of the time can help you the most. So right. they are. So the adjectives were scary crazy, and clueless. Oh, that's right. Scary, crazy, and clueless. Scary, crazy, and clueless. And scary parents are so judgmental and rigid, and they say things that are, in fact, scary to hear if you're a kid. You know, let's say you're a kid and your best friend, you know, did something stupid, and you tell your parents, and they say something like, oh, my God, I would die if you did that. (laughs) Or... He just ruined his chances for getting into college. (laughs) Or you can never see them again. Or you can never have that child here again. Exactly right. Right. So if you're scary, your kids aren't going to come to you. You know, so keep those thoughts to yourself and try and be approachable. Crazy parents amplify drama. You weren't invited to that party? Are you kidding me? I can't believe it. That is so awful. I'm going to call her mother. Oh, what a bitch. Da, 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 da. Don't do that. I'm totally humiliated now, says right. Junior. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so if you make things worse by upping the volume in your kid's upsetness or situation, they're not going to turn to you. They need somebody to calm things down. So the opposite of crazy is calm. The opposite of scary is approachable. And clueless parents, clueless parents were clueless for two different reasons. Some parents were described as clueless because they're so busy that they don't have the time to check in with their kids and what their kids are doing online. And, and I'm very sympathetic to that because many parents have to work two jobs just to, to keep the families going. And... Right. And it's very hard, it feels very hard and overwhelming to tackle all of this technology if you yourself are not using it in your own work, in your own world. But the other form of clueless parents were parents who thought and believed that they knew everything their kids were doing online (laughs) and everything was just great. (laughs) And the research points to a big disconnect between what parents think their kids are doing online and what kids are actually doing online. And the thing that's so interesting is that about 50% of kids say that if their parents knew what they were doing online, they would change what they're doing online, Ah. which means that as parents, you can make a big difference by making your kids show you their text, sitting down with them and saying, let's just go to the sites you've been at. You know, right. No erasing cookies, no erasing history. If you do that, you lose the computer. Right. Again, it goes back to that contract. By the way, Common Sense Media is a wonderful online resource for templates 
for how to have a contract. Edutopia is another wonderful resource online for how to create family expectations. You don't have to invent this on your own. People are doing it for you. Give us those websites if you have them, and I will definitely put them uh, on when they're... This is going to be archived for anyone who's missed any of this, and we'll definitely have these as uh, links on the uh, on the archive Great. so people can find them. Yeah. So, Common Sense... CommonSenseMedia.org uh-huh. and Edutopia. Uh-huh. E-D-U. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Okay. And yes, and and so there, that they'll have contracts, and that you can work out specifically what your kids, you know, what's appropriate for your kids. Yes, and, to, and and the the point you were getting, Toronto, that's so important is one of the biggest things that impact whether or not children come to us when they are, themselves are in trouble is how we respond when we hear about other kids in the community who have gotten into trouble. Right. So if you're really judgmental, you overreact or you say horribly damning things, or you get hysterical, then why would your child come to you if they were in trouble, if that's how you react when somebody else's kid is in trouble? Right. So it's just so important to stay calm, to be approachable, to be as informed as you can be. And then this comes back to the sustainable family. You've got to hang out as a family. You have to create family time that is, and, and some of it can be, you know, if you want to be playing some of the good computer games together, like Minecraft or whatever, you know, it's not that all computer games are bad, but when you play a computer game, you, you don't have the same give and take as when you play a game that's not on the screen. And most of all, when you go for hikes, you know, for yep. families living in Maine, I mean, there's just so much connecting that goes on when you are in nature together. And that was another sustainable family uh, thought that I had and write about in the book. Yes. Kids need to be given opportunities to develop the capacity for solitude and to enjoy their own company. Yes. And nature is where so so many of us find that that marvelous sense of connection to something spiritual and bigger than ourselves and where we hear ourselves in a different kind of way. And parents really need to make sure that their children are having some kinds of experiences out of doors, which also, of course, in the bigger picture, when you think about sustainability, this is the next generation that is inheriting a very big challenge in terms of sustainability for the planet. And we, we can't expect kids to be stewards of the planet if they don't have an experience of it themselves and some kind of connection to to it themselves. So that's another very important aspect of what I think sustainable families do. So, yes, getting out there. And again, there's that whole mind-body connection, the physical, we're actually walking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're actually right. using our body. Yep. Right. And uh, are you finding that, uh, I, I, I see kids participating in, um, in sports and, and, and doing that sort of thing as well and still and moving, but is that harder to get kids involved in? And, you know, uh, <laughs> excuse me, when kids are involved in sports at school, that's not hard. There's a lot of reward for that. There's, and it's such a great thing. And playing on a team has so many benefits 
in addition to just getting good at whatever game it is, what is tricky and what parents complain about a great deal is it's really hard to get kids when they come home from school to go kick a ball outside, to go play soccer. There you they go. They say, no, I want to play soccer on my Wii. Ah. You know. Got it. Or we're all playing soccer, but we're playing online, and it's no fun at home. I, you know, only two of us can play. But you're not really playing. You're not really playing. Right. Exactly right. So, by the way, we're listening. you're listening to Healthy Options, if you just tuned in. And I'm your host, Rhonda Feynman. Our guest today is Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair, who's a clinical psychologist. She teaches at Harvard Medical School and has a practice working with children and families. We're talking about her new book, The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. So no computers, no smartphones at the dinner table, perhaps? Certainly at the dinner table, and of course, with the caveat, there are some adults who have jobs that require they be available, whether yes. you're a doctor on doctor. call or a nurse on call or, you know, whatever it is. But if you are going to get a call you must take during dinner, put your phone on vibrator, tell everybody, explain that it's work, and remove yourself from the table rather than sit there, take the call, and make everybody else have to go on hold. Yes. But there are other transitions in the day that are really critical for children to have their parents' undivided attention. Yes. Kids really do not like it. When they are driven to school in a car where they are hearing half a grown-up conversation, particularly if the grown-ups are arguing, whether you're arguing with somebody at work or you're arguing with, you know, the other parent who forgot the backpack or whatever it is. It is not a good way to go to school. Right. And kids like that feeling, even if it's silent. They like the feeling of being primarily connected to the, their parents in the car. It's, it's also a time, it seems to me, where you can actually learn how to be quiet and be by yourself. Exactly right. And daydream. And daydream and get ready for school. Right. For all that stimulation that's going to happen there. Right. And teachers notice which kids come in having been on screens, whether they're on the screen on the bus ride or in a car being driven to school. Even more, equally as important, and, and perhaps more so, is when you pick your children up at school. Yes. If you are on a screen or they can text, you miss that really critical download of what their day was like. You miss getting their emotional weather report. And as soon as you give a child a phone they can text on, they will text the story of their days to their friends, and you miss out on that. And that's critical information for parents. So I think cars in general should be no screens. And if you're going on a long car ride, then decide. You know, for the first hour, no screens. You know, if you've got a seven-hour car ride, well, fine. You know, decide what you want to do. But, but certainly in in puttering around, in and out, ordinary days, cars are very critical time for children to feel connected and to play word games and yes. rhyming games and sing with their parents. You know, they, those car rides kind of create family time. They create a sense of family cohesion. Yes, yes. like when you're arguing with your siblings in the back seat and your Absolutely. mother's yelling at you, it's great. Yeah. It, you know, Who could forget? <laughs> it's, it's awful, but it is great because that's, you know, that's what makes a family a family. It's true. 
And those are the stories. Do they you remember when we were going and mom sat on the seat and turned around and started threatening us in a positive way? That's right. Very right. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll behave. Yep. Right. And, and those are, you know, it, it, parents are understandably very concerned about what education their kids need to be successful. Yes. But when you look at the current research on what helps children actually succeed, certainly being read to by a person is critical. Right. Um, and books on tape, second best. Uh-huh. TV, not so hot. Not so good. Unless it's Mr. Rogers. You know, there's the <laughs> educational TV shows really are good. But the number one tool or intelligence that you want your children to have is social and emotional intelligence. Right. And that comes from interacting with people. And families are one of the richest resources for teaching and helping kids to develop social and emotional intelligences. And when you look at the new family portrait of everybody plugged into their own screen around the living room or going for a long car ride and nobody's talking to each other, everybody has their earbuds in, you're not using that time to develop those tools and resources for your children or your family. Kids are are actually drawing those kinds of pictures, aren't they? Oh, it's it's very poignant. When I first started collecting these drawings, I thought they were kind of funny. Right. Because, These are how old know, kids, five to ten or something, or even younger? Or even younger. You younger. Know, in play therapy, and, and certainly oh, right. kindergartner teachers do this all the sure. time. You know, when kids come back to school, draw me a picture of your summer vacation or something you did this sure. summer. Or in play therapy, I'll say, you know, draw me a picture of your family and tell me about it. And in the past six years or so, there's a whole new picture of the family, and it's one of... You know, there's daddy on his stupid computer and there's mommy on her stupid cell phone and here I am all alone at the dinner table. The dog keeps me company. Right. That, that one was another one. Right. I'm really lonely, but the dog's talking to me. I yes. know. So oh, my goodness. Sad. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. And, and then, you know, there was one wonderful mom in Maine I, I, uh, I worked with and she talked about a huge aha moment for herself when when she had her first child, she didn't have a smartphone. Mm-hmm. And they would drive as everybody in Maine does, right? You know, mm-hmm. a half hour or an hour for a play date or to this or the farmer's market. And the car rides were really rich. Mm-hmm. And then she had a second child and thought, okay, this will simplify my life. I should get a smartphone. It's really going to be better. And she found herself taking different routes because the cell service was better. Oh, my goodness. And her second baby's first word was my pony. Oh, no. And that made her burst into tears. And she realized that she kept saying, I'm just on my phone. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> One minute, darling, I'm on my phone. Uh-huh. And that for her was a huge wake-up call. Whoa. This baby is having a very different experience of me as a mom and and baby right. years than my now six year old had. Ooh. So change behavior. Mm-hmm. Wow.
Yeah, just be more mindful. Right. So, you know, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, and, and we, we have a, a few minutes left, so we're okay to do this, um, the, 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 the challenges that high school students are, are having. And you were talking a lot about, again, we talked a little bit about gender roles, but the whole early sexuality, this whole porn and, and this mm-hmm. idea of, of a particular kind of aggressiveness. And how do, how do we handle that? And when, you know, people, the, the kids are, are, are growing up faster or seeing things and thinking that that's what intimacy is, you yep. know, from a porn site or something like that. Well, this is a real challenge. Um, and it's a very complicated one. Yes. You know, the, the unfortunate reality is we are a sex-saturated culture. Right. And we are a highly misogynistic culture. And the images that kids see, think about the halftime show at the Super Bowl this year, right. Beyonce doing a, a, you know, a pole dance. Right. This is the halftime show, and she's licking her hand and sticking it in her crotch. And, you know, you also got to wonder, no wonder parts of the world hate us. You know, yes. this is what we have become. Right. for entertainment. And at the same time, we have lost the abilities because of the blurring of the boundary between church and state to teach healthy sexuality in schools. Right. So sex education and family sex living, which is... Sex education has gone off right. the core curriculum right. because of the blurring of religious values and freedom of speech. Hmm. Meanwhile, kids now are getting their sex education online, boys in particular, and what they are watching makes the Playboy magazine of yesteryear <laughs> seem right. very mild. Right. So they are not only getting a sex education from hard, misogynistic, violent, sadistic pornography, or what another researcher I love calls gornography because it's gory mm. as well as pornographic. Nobody is talking to them. Right. Nobody at school is talking to them and parents aren't talking to them about how this is not healthy, how you're not going to be able to perform sexually if you link your sexual response cycle to this kind of stuff, right. how the girls you like or the boys you like, whoever you are, won't want to play these games. And in my focus groups around the country, 13-year-old boys, 12-year-old boys, 14-year-old boys would ask me questions like, uh, excuse me, Dr. Steiner, there, I've been wanting to ask somebody, why, why would a woman get off on being choked while having sex? Right. And of course, a woman would not. Would not. But this is what they are learning because they are getting their sex ed and they are learning how they're discovering their own sexuality by responding sexually to this kind of pornography. I love this story. A friend of mine is a history teacher, and um, she was so proud of her son because he was so into his homework that he was taking his computer even into the bathroom with him <laughs> to do homework. <laughs> not not <laughs> yeah and then she realized oh because they had a really good have to use the computer in the family room space he was going into the bathroom 
Needed a little privacy. Yeah, needed a little privacy, exactly right. <laughs> so, you know, because she's a teacher, she then was able to say to him, honey, let me tell you something. <laughs> you know, if you watch this stuff, if you masturbate to this stuff, you are really going to make it hard to be a good lover, to have sustained intimacy of the kind that you will most likely want. And this will neurologically affect you. This will psychologically affect you. It will have an impact that's negative on how you view women, on how you experience intimacy. You know, the language of hookup culture, who benefits from friends with benefits? Nobody. Nobody. So these are the conversations we need to be having as parents. And again, a lot of us didn't grow up needing these conversations or having them with our parents. So that's why I put a lot of scripts about how to do this in the book. Yeah, I saw those are great. But also, we really need to challenge locally this gag on talking about healthy sexuality, all kinds of sexual identities, what connected sexuality means. There you go. Well... Thank you for bringing uh, this out to and, and having this vital conversation with us, Dr. Katherine Steiner there. My total pleasure. I'm sorry that the phone might not have been strong. Well, we'll do the best we can. Okay. The author of Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair is the author of The Biggest Disconnect. Thank you for joining us today on Healthy Options, sharing so many insights on protecting and nurturing childhood and family relationships in the digital age. We're going to have a whole bunch of websites and connections on, on the archives, uh, which you'll be able to check out later uh, when it's up on uh, the weru.org um, uh, website. So if you need more information, you can go to uh, katherinesteineradair.com. And uh, if you've missed any part of the show, it'll be archived. Thank you, Amy Brown, for engineering. Thank you, Petra Hall, for your production assistance. Thank you, Dr. Katherine steiner there for uh, and, and thanks for listening and supporting WERU, all of those who tuned in. I'm Rhonda Feynman. Thank you. Support for WERU health-related programming comes from the Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information, publishing